one of the things that I feel people do not realize about pro cycling, if you meet a professional who has never been a top performer, but has been in his sport for many years, you will probably think he's a really nice guy. And there's a reason for that. Because the job I did as a professional cyclist was usually as a domestique. Which means there were many people, many of my peers, who could have very easily done the same job I was doing for the same pay. Why did I get the job? Well, that's maybe a bad example talking about myself, but why did certain guys get the job? Because they were pleasant to be around. And so why pick that guy over that guy when they can both do the same job? That guy's a nice guy. That guy makes his team spirit good. And he lifts up other guys. And even if he has a bad day, he deals with it in a way that it doesn't like ruin the whole team spirit. Now, what you see from the outside when you're watching TV, heat of the moment, you might never know these things. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to King of the Ride podcast. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to King of the Ride podcast is right. Now, this actually struck me only today, given that the 2019 Giro has recently kicked off and Peter Sagan is back to his winning ways at the Tour of California. It was just one year ago that I was launching KOTR, King of the Ride, which which was prefaced with some lively Giro and Tour of California race analysis, kickstarting our very first episode. So I'm, I'm pleased as punch to also announce that I recently received notification with, with more reason to celebrate, saying that we have more than 100,000 downloads here on KOTR. Thank you. I mean it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this ride. Thanks for continuing to spread the word as we launch into... I don't know. Is it is it season two? I've never quite understood the the concept of seasons in media, in TV shows and podcasts. So let's just call this year two, King of the Ride, year two. And that said, I encourage you to scroll back through our archives. Thirty two quality episodes lie in wait, with of course professional cyclists, but also impressive names in the culinary world, preeminent journalists, event promoters of some of the biggest cycling events of their kind on planet Earth. We've got some terrific engineers, VPs of some of the world's biggest corporations. We've got that and plenty more. Now, please remember these episodes are a whole lot of fun to produce. And that said, they are not easy to produce. So if you are new to this show, there are plenty of episodes from last year's show that I know you're going to get a kick out of. Check those out. Now, speaking of the Giro and Tour of California. Let's go ahead and make some predictions. Yates, Rodledge, Nibli. That's my podium, not necessarily in that order. I'm going to go ahead and say that this is the year, this is the Giro, this is the Grandi that Primoz takes his first Grand Tour win. That would be a very impressive feat if he took pink from day one through day 21. He just might have it up his sleeve. 
And I'm going to keep the rest of these predictions short and sweet. I'm not even going to give reasons why. Just remember the names Davide Formolo, Pavel Sivikov, Teo Gegenhardt, and Hugh Carthy of the EF Education First Cannondale team. And Mikel Landa? Yep, Mikel, watch out for him. Watch out for all of those riders this month in Italy. And then let's jump continents back here to the Estados Unidos. I hope nothing for the best for TJ. I want to see him keep the jersey from start to finish. Well, not start, but he got on stage two. Also, keep your eyes on some very fun names to say. Tajay Pogachar, Casper Osgreen, and Maximilian Schachmann. All three of those are just really fun names to say. Keep your eyes peeled on all of those riders this week, all those riders this month. I love bike racing. It's such a fun thing to watch. Okay. Let's talk gravel. Let's set the scene for this conversation and chat gravel because today's pod is going to highlight a lot of the, let's call it philosophical elements of gravel. Our guest today, Dan Craven. Dan from Nam, Namibia, that is. So superficially, this conversation is one to take in and enjoy purely for the soft, easy listening tones of Dan's Namibian accent Dan is a standout. His accent is amazing. His beard is exceptional and his positivity is palpable. But then there are reasons you should take this conversation in beyond those reasons. Dan and I, we're kindred spirits. We're we're unrelated twins. And that comes in a handful of examples throughout this show. We both studied economics a, a, a lifetime ago. The two of us got into the sport a little bit later than our European counterparts. We are literally born one day apart. It's that and plenty more. Please stay tuned for those those fun details throughout the pod. So after operating in oddly parallel lives, Dan and I never actually met prior to this first time at the Dartmouth Tuck School of Business Next Step program just recently this very spring. This is a program now in its third year of existence whereby professional athletes and lifelong military personnel, we dip our toes into the business world. And we we are learning by way of some of the finest business school professors on planet Earth here at Tuck. We, at the next step, ended up as a class just shy of 70, full application required. I believe we had about a 50% acceptance rate. Ultimately, bringing together high, high levels of military experience paired with Olympic athletes, gold medalists, and medalists of all kinds. The parallels in motivation and expertise between athletes and military are remarkable. It's, it's the monastic drive. It's the discipline. Let's, let's stay with the, the D letter. It's the dedication. It's determination. It's the desire to succeed. These are all key characteristics in both of our professions, athletes and military. Similarly, at some point or another, we're going to come to a pivotal point in our lives and question what's next. How do we translate these skills from the playing field or battlefield to the real world? So in short, next step where this conversation took place is a two-week program of highly intensive business education. It means we are operating on ridiculously full days. And as it pertains to this conversation, it also means that Dan and I found time in our schedule, which includes waking up at 5.30 to sneak in a ride. We, we sought out a quiet room and self-imposed happy hour to carve out the time for this conversation. As such, ladies and gentlemen, please pardon these sips and crunching of chips. 
we had to we had to quash our hunger and sate our our appetite and thirst some way. So please pardon that interruption. Anyway, lastly, before this conversation gets underway, I want to thank Icor for presenting another terrific episode. Icor is a clean, natural source of recovery enhancing full spectrum hemp extract. They design their products with athletes in mind, and their goal is to protect your body from the stresses of training, improve recovery from intense efforts, and maintain a positive mental state. I have had the good fortune of trying Icor's current line of products and perhaps a thing or two that I'm excited to see coming down the pike. Great sleep, a calm mind, and a reduction in stress. Those are all key points to a life on the go, whether that's on the bike or off. Icor helps key in on each of these aspects. So Icor and I want to help you try their products as well. So head over to IcorLabs.com. That is I-K-O-R-L-A-B-S.com and save 15% by using the code King of the Ride, all one word, at checkout. That is it for me, ladies and gentlemen. Next up, please enjoy my conversation with Dan Craven. You and I have, we have swum in similar circles. We have operated in similar orbits, but it's not until here at Dartmouth's Tuck Next Step Program for segueing professional athletes and military personnel that we get to hang out, get to have a podcast, get to be in class together, get to go for bike rides, Mm -hmm. get to drink some beers. Um, Yeah. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. Um, I'll add to that that we've swum in similar ponds and we've swum similar directions mm-hmm. in those ponds, yeah. but somehow never really crossed paths. True. Which is interesting. So, and, um, presumably, you mean as closely as Girona? Yes. Well, among others, but among let's, others. let's go with Girona and, to begin. And, and then, you know, such similar directions that we find each other at a place like this, which. I think says quite a lot in itself. I agree, which was fortuitous because I was in California when you were in California, and I think you and I first started communicating early 2019. I learned that you were there. I was like, "Oh man, I want to have a podcast with you." You got a fascinating story. Let's let's sit down and talk bikes and life and everything else. And there we were in California, getting ready for a grasshopper, and you were you had a couple things in your schedule, and it wasn't going to work out, and it wasn't. More than about a week or two after that, you said, hey, I see your name's on the roster. You're coming out to this program. So this, uh, yeah, that was that was quite the surprise. How did, let's jump all over the place. How did you first become aware of this program, Tuck Next Step? So Rachel Joyce came second in a Hawaii Ironman once, mm-hmm. a friend of my wife's. She did this program last year and posted about it about four days before the closing date. My wife sent that on to me. And you know, when you see, sometimes you just see something, you're like, yes. Like, do you know the hell yes or no rule? Uh, Not familiar. So actually really simple. If the answer is not hell yes, Uh the answer is no. (laughs) Does it have to be a yes or hell yes or no question? Or are there shades of gray? 
Well, I mean, it's a yes or no question. I think the answer there was hell yes. <laughs> that was not a trick question. I just... <laughs> Caught me out. Okay. So basically, if you say yes to everything, you're not going to have time on your schedule for when the hell yes thing comes around. Oh. And if you only say yes to something, you're not really going to be into it. And this program, I read Rachel's post on Instagram and it was hell yes. It's just, I have to be there. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea who would be here. Obviously, most of our classmates have some military background big question marks about that, like how am I in Namibian going to feel hanging around people from the American military? Mm -hmm. um, and then who are the other athletes that are going to rock up? And then as you said, reading through the list of people who came was really interesting, sort of don't know anyone, don't know anyone. And of course, a whole bunch of American Olympic medalists who most Americans would probably have heard of, but to me, the names didn't mean anything. And then, you know, the only name that I knew was yours. And here we are, you know, about 10 days deep into the two-week program and just having an absolute blast with this eclectic mix of people who all feel as if, going back to the pool analogy, we all feel as if we've kind of been swimming in the same pools. We all have completely different yet similar experiences and growth situations, if I can call it that. Hell yes. <laughs> um, yes, we, I think what this, this, this entire program is teaching is through the perspective of a liberal arts um, stab at business. We're taking, I mean, so we're looking at a lot of things philosophically and from a, from a, from a relatively high perspective. We're not delving deep because you have only an hour and a half or up to three hours of a professor's time, which that professor is otherwise teaching a entire semester or an entire year in that hour and a half or three hour period. So yeah, they, I think they're having a blast. Um, I think you and I were both a little bit daunted with, with the amount of homework coming into the program. <laughs> um, you know, we got, we got the homework beforehand, which included a handful of assignments, some videos to view, some reading, a particular 75-page document that you and I are both going back and forth. Did you read it? Did you read it? Did you read it? <laughs> Do we really have to read it? And it's so, I don't know, it puts me at peace to come into these classes every day. And I think each professor is, is, has a very similar perspective, which is, I mean, my, my thought is, taking a step back, Education, college, university, especially here in the States, is wasted on the youth. It's sort of this understood step that you're supposed to take after high school. Whereas it's not until you're, you're later on in life, like late 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, beyond, that, that we have the opportunity now to, to really appreciate education. Which exactly like I did four years of university in South Africa after high school and I believe that for this two-week program, I did more preparation work than I did during all four of those years <laughs> because I was there because I thought I needed to be there. Yeah. Whereas this was, I had to be here deep down inside me. I was like, this is an amazing opportunity. And I've been putting so much effort into this. And I think back to my university days and like, all I wanted to do there was ride my bicycle. And it's thanks to that that I was able to improve and 
reach the level that I eventually did. But it was kind of a squandered opportunity, which is, it got me to where I wanted to be and I have no regrets, but yet I do recognize that it was definitely quite sad. And, and jumping around chronologically, as we often do on King of the Ride, remind me what you studied at university. I did a BA politics, philosophy, and economics. Uh-huh. So we had the economics. It's in. the economics that we yes. have alike. We both lived in Girona. We've spent time in California at the same time together. Yada, yada, yada. We're born one day apart, literally, <laughs> literally <laughs> Which one is day amazing. apart. Um, all right. Jump around on the calendar. Jump back to the way, way back. You've said Namibia. Tell us where you grew up. Um, tell me about your family. Tell me how you got into cycling and and what became that profession out of university. All right, where to start? So, um, I suppose a lot of Americans will be curious. My family has been in Southern Africa since 1840, originating from the UK. Both of my parents were born in South Africa, moved to and met each other in Namibia where we have ever since called home. So I was born and raised in Namibia, very proud. Uh, the northwestern neighbor of South Africa, absolutely beautiful country, twice the size of California with only a population of about 2.4 million. Wow. So there are not too many of us, especially out of the country. And um, watched a triathlon when I was really young. And then we moved inland, completely forgot about it. One day when I was about 16, 15 years even old at a soccer tournament, saw a post advertising a triathlon. And it was one of those, once again, hell yes moments. I saw this poster and there was just something in my body that just went, yes, Mm -hmm. that. And with all of my might. And I nearly cried because the triathlon was the next weekend. And I just knew that there was no chance I would be able to do it with no training. And the event was 250 miles away from where I went to school. No chance. But I said, next year, I'm there. (laughs) So I started off a few months later, was a duathlon season. My very first duathlon, I forgot my running shoes at home. I did it on a mountain bike with knobblies. Needless to say, I sucked. <laughs> I started triathlon, boarding school in a town that had no swimming pool. And on weekends, I would swim in our swimming pool at home on our farm, which is kind of like a reservoir. It's green with fish in it and only 16 meters long. So needless to say, I sucked. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, But it just sort of, there was something about it that spoke to me. And then I went to university in South Africa, joined the cycling club and just realized this is actually the part that really excited me. And it was the whole time just this something saying to me, hell yes, this is what I want to do and I love. That is awesome. Uh, Family, so... Give us the, the the history of your family coming to Africa in the first place. Do you have siblings? I have two older sisters, uh-huh. and uh, one of them lives very far away in New Zealand, uh-huh. a place I have yet to visit, I'm embarrassed to say. I uh, would love to get there as soon as possible. Uh-huh. My middle sister is a lawyer in Namibia, uh-huh. recently, a while ago, moved back from South Africa, where she'd been ever since university. 
Um, yes, and my mother's still on the farm alone these days, but she's absolutely loving it and <clears throat> making the most of the beauty that Namibia has to offer. Very cool. Well, anytime you've ever spoken about it, anytime I see pictures on your Instagram, which is absolutely worth following, Dan from Nam. How do you pronounce it? Dan from Nam? Nam from <laughs> Dan Nam. from Nam. That's... Dan from Nam. <laughs> Dan from Nam. Uh, okay. And not Vietnam. Exactly. Namibia. <laughs> do not be confused, American audience. It is Dan from <laughs> Namibia. Okay, so how do you segue this this infatuation and love with cycling to ultimately a career and and being two-time Olympian and so on and so forth. My th Please pardon the crunching. I'm going to eat some of these sea salt and vinegar chips. Mm -hmm. Long day in the class. We need to uh, refuel. Literally, what, 9 a.m.? Let's take a step back. Dan and I woke up at probably 5.30 to get on our bikes at 6 a.m. to go do a ride, shot a little Grode to Kanza, which is awesome. We hope to see Dan mm -hmm. there. Yes, it is. In the class at 9 a.m., straight through with two 15-minute breaks, one lunch break, and now it is 7 o'clock at night. So, okay, carry on. Day. So, I mean, obviously, to have ridden professionally in Europe, I have some talent. I'm not denying that fact, but I'm not a super talent by any means. I would definitely say the reason that I reached the level I did was because of my tenacity, which in many moments bordered on stupidity. Another trait that you and I share. <laughs> Carry on. And just that would not have been possible if I did not absolutely love what I do so much. And I would say I've sort of built up somewhat of a fan base, not because of my results, but because of the enthusiasm and the love that somehow shines through my actions. And um, I'm just very grateful for that because it's sort of created, it's kind of created happy people as opposed to impressed people yeah. around me. Uh, and when I say around me, I mean, this is like maybe still talking in a social media platform, but obviously not only. Uh, but it's just great, like, you know, you interact with people who follow you on social media and you, you sort of get to know certain people over a period of time. And I really, I don't really know how other professional athletes experience this. I can only see this out of my eyes, but I really feel like I, the people who follow me and interact with me quite often, I almost always enjoy their stories. They have to tell me and mm -hmm. um, just very appreciative of that everyone's got a story exactly. especially i think well i was gonna say especially in cycling i'm always fascinated how how anybody gets into cycling even if it is i'm a belgian and my local club invited me to go for a ride or i went to the local club and got into cycling like there's a story to how everybody got into the sport and just saying that how everyone has a story so i basically learned a lot when I was in South Africa at university and almost every race in South Africa is pretty much a Grand Fondo and they have this amazing seeding system. I mean, we had timing chips and year-long seedings way back when I was in university in 2001. That's how organized it is there. 
It doesn't matter if you start in the A bunch or the Pro bunch or whatever you want to call it. You get to the finish of the race and absolutely everyone has a story. There's a one race in South Africa called the Cape Town Cycle Tour. used to be called the Argus. Ooh, I've heard of this. They have 35,000 plus finishers. They have around 40,000 entrants. And you get to that race and everyone in South Africa knows that if you do under three hours, you've done a good time. And everyone is at the finish and everyone has a story and it doesn't matter. For example, I came fifth in that race this year, which is my best result. (laughs) It's quite chuffed. (laughs) But... People around me didn't necessarily want to know about my race because they'd all ridden themselves and it doesn't matter if they were 40 minutes slower than me. Everyone had the exact same energy and excitement to talk about their own ride. And the thing that I really love about being at those events is it sort of teaches you to like, it doesn't matter that you're in the pro bunch. You can also listen to these other guys as much as you want to talk about yourself. <laughs> no, the, 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 you I mean, you're pinging on like what's amazing about gravel mm, and maybe exactly. what we're, what we're diving back towards is what's cool about gravel is the mass start and the yes. shared sense of community at the finish. Yes. Because otherwise the only other mass starts we have in, in the States are Grand Fondos, which I think are taking a, my opinion, well, not all of them, certainly not all of them. Many of them are taking a page too much out of road racing, which is, uh, uh, you know, sort of falling precipitously in the States. Anyway. We've, we've spoken about sort of the gravel culture yeah. a few times already this, these past 10 days. Gravel's and big, man. It's growing. It's a it's thing. It's growing and there's a reason <laughs> it's growing. It's, I mean, there's not a reason. There are many reasons yes. that it's growing. Yep. And it just, it sort of brings together so many different things. It's like... A little, it's the road bike feel and the tactics and the distance, but without the sort of the dangers, road closure, traffic, but also just a little bit of extra technicality, which makes mm-hmm. you pay a little bit more attention. And the way that the sport is growing, the beautiful thing with a, a relatively new sport is that it's, it's still... It's finding itself. It's doing all of these weird and wonderful things. And once again, the two of us, I think we we really enjoy that sort of yeah. something that's different, something that's exciting. Um, I love the the tactics of gravel. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the tactics of road racing that are in gravel with mm-hmm. all these other things. Um, what I'm worried about is the scripted nature of road racing coming into gravel. And that is... Um, a concern that I'm having to express more and more because you basically don't want, you don't want road racing off road and call it gravel. Exactly. You don't want teams to come in and have purely the strongest team come in and dominate with numbers because if you're one, one person against a team of hitters, well, Mm -hmm. ultimately, um, that team of hitters is going to have a team leader. And what I love about gravel at the end of the day is the great equalizer that is gravel itself. Mm-hmm. And it's it's being out in the middle open and, and being self-exposed or being exposed and being self-supported. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to purely take it from the perspective of a competitive gravel rider. Um, but, yeah, at the end of the day, you also want to come back and appreciate everything that is right about gravel, which is that start feeling. Everybody's very excited and eager on the start line. 
and then stopping at the feed zone and stopping at the finish and helping your, your fellow rider out. So another thing that you'd really appreciate about Peter, Vermont Overland, <laughs> he has done a really good job getting rid of uh, road signage. Ooh. So the arrow's all over the course because he wants it to be self-navigated so that you create community, so that you communicate. So when you're within a group and you see on your, on your GPS that you have a left turn coming up, you holler it out. Like you don't want to do well or... You don't want to do well on a technicality. You don't want to lose your group because the dude to your left doesn't have the GPS and you know that there's a corner coming up. Like there's still, there's a built sense of community by not having the road signage. And this is the kind of thing that as the sport is still developing, I really hope that aspects like that are embraced by more organizers mm -hmm. and that riders tell the organ. <clears throat> tell the organizers we like this we want this as opposed to it becoming road races on gravel Bingo. that said i mean i've not actually even done a gravel race in the u.s yet but i don't want to become one of those guys who you've done plenty of gravel riding i've done oh, carry I've on done, carry on <laughs> yes but i don't want to become one of those guys who bemoans how a sport is going if it's not to my oh, liking. Trust me. That is a difficult... <laughs> yes, yes, I completely that's another agree. Completely different discussion. But I think we both completely agree that currently the, the fun aspect of gravel is what really draws both of us to it. And if that changes, it will be a pity. Yes. No matter how the sport grows... If we can keep the fun bit, uh -huh. it's good. Fact. Well, yes, to be continued on the how we will see how gravel unfolds. But in the meantime, let's talk, let's talk the here and now over the past couple decades. Talk to me about how do you make the leap? I mean, I, one question that I wanted to ask you is what is what is riding like back in Namibia? What are races like? We talked about that with, with the Fondo aspect. You somehow impress somebody enough to make the leap and get to Europe. You don't just say, hey, I got fifth in this Grand Fondo with 35,000 people. How did you make the leap overseas? Uh, well, yeah, I guess that's a C. That's a Mediterranean. <laughs> so I believe one of the things I'm going to... There are a few things that I love pointing out to people. And being on a podcast, I have the perfect opportunity to do so. One of the things that... I feel people do not realize about pro cycling. If you meet a professional who has never been a top performer, but has been in his sport for many years, you will probably think he's a really nice guy. And there's a reason for that. Because... The job I did as a professional cyclist was usually as a domestique. Which means there were many people, many of my peers, who could have very easily done the same job I was doing for the same pay. Why did I get the job? Well, that's maybe a bad example talking about myself, but why did certain guys <laughs> get the job? Because they were pleasant to be around. And so why pick that guy over that guy when they can both do the same job? That guy's a nice guy. 
that guy makes his team spirit good and he lifts up other guys and even if he has a bad day he deals with it in a way that it doesn't like ruin the whole team spirit now what you see from the outside when you're watching tv heat of the moment you might never know these things and so once again talking about myself <laughs> I, I could think, be saying these things about you so carry on <laughs> i think that you know i love to smile i love to laugh i have to love being around people and interacting and when we were when i was a student in south africa i met an italian who knew an italian who knew an italian who knew an italian who knew a swiss guy <laughs> who sponsored an amateur cycling team and the first italian i met it was purely because there was this italian guy who i suddenly saw two or three weekends in a row at these races in south africa and you can imagine an italian in 2002 at a race in south africa he stood out like a sore thumb uh, just picture mario cipollini pit rocking up at your local group ride certo sì assolutamente <laughs> you notice him yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And I went straight up to this guy, wanted to know who he was, where he came from, what he was doing there. Not because I wanted something from him, just because I was curious and I could see just by the look of him that he knew what he was doing and I wanted to know what I could learn from him. <laughs> next thing I know, he's introducing me to his buddy, who introduces me to the next buddy, and it was simply because I was one of the very few guys in the race approached him and who wanted to talk to him and that led to the next connection led to the next connection which eventually at the right time got me into this amateur team in Switzerland which was on the Italian border so pretty much an Italian amateur team and there are several years in my career where I definitely got a contract renewal because of my personal impact on the team over the results that I got. And there are many many times when I have seen guys who were better than me who did not get their contract renewed mm -hmm. because of their personalities. Mm -hmm. And I wish more people knew about that because there are so many kids who think they are great and realize don't realize that in pro cycling There are a lot of people who are greater than you are and being great isn't necessarily the thing that's going to keep you on a team. Absolutely. Um, I can speak again parallels. I mean, it's you were on a characteristically Italian team that can be a it can be a, <laughs> a very fun opportunity and job and profession. It can be very challenging at times. Mm -hmm. um, but my very good friend Joao Correa has taught me that it is a relationship world and it is exactly with whom well not even with whom everybody is with whom it's what you are going to do with those with those opportunities and how is your character uh inner character going to going to shine what are you going to do with those relationships um okay so fast forward through we we've we've spoken that we're we overlap in Girona That would have been about 2014, 2015. Um, I mean, you you clearly move up the ranks. You race two Olympics, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, you race in the World Tour. Um, I mean, theoretically, only six months in the World Tour, but 
Yes. <laughs> Theoretically, but we'll give you we'll give you 18 months. I mean, well, that's that's a crazy story unto itself. Like talk about jumping into the world tour halfway through the year with your up car. <laughs> uh, yes. So the team that is now known as Direct Energy Total or Total Direct Energy, I'm not even sure. They're only They're the black and gold over. team. They have actually just changed to blue and white with touches oh, of red because they've I become total. Saw that in okay, I saw that in Roubaix and exactly. I didn't know what was going on. Yes. Got it. Uh so in their previous guys before Direct Energy was Team Europe Car and the owner of the team, Jean René Bernardot, amazing French character, who sits behind the steering wheel of the team car at one race every year and that race is the Tropical Amisa Bongo aka the Tour of Gabon which to those of you who don't know is a country <laughs> pretty much on the equator in Africa I'm going to google it right now Yes, <laughs> go on <laughs> and Jean-René flamboyant, interesting lovely French character just loves Africa loves supporting African cycling and so I was racing this event in 2011 with an African composite team, three Ethiopians, two Zambians, South African staff and myself, and pretty much very long hair, very big beard, <laughs> riding a steel bicycle in a steel condor, uh, which is one of my old sponsors, in the middle of Africa. And this Frenchman just could not believe, firstly, that anyone would rock up to a bicycle race looking like that. And secondly, the things that I was doing, um, I was in the top 10 on GC, I won the King of the Mountains. And at one point, um, one of the favorites for the race put in a hard attack on a climb and I counterattacked him. And at the finish line... Who is a nameless, reputable pro <laughs> of, of great European repute. Yes. This is not. Was very upset that this unknown African had attacked him and that went on to complain that dope testing in Africa was insufficient and probably non existent. Hmm. And Jean Rene absolutely was just loving the fact that this was all happening. Uh -huh. And so we, we struck up a conversation. My French at the time was disastrous but somehow with hand signals we had several conversations and he said to me that he would love to have me on his team but his team was not world tour and if his team went world tour the following year he would be able to sign more riders because he would have extra space on the roster um 2012 they did not go world tour same in 2013 but 2014 the team went world tour by which time I was like a memory at the back of Jean-René's head. But fortunately that year, I went back to Gabon and had another good race. And a few months later, I received an email from him saying, would you like to join the team? Which meant obviously having stepped up to World Tour, extra racing program, they realized they didn't have enough riders, there was space for me. Um, I thought it was a hoax, obviously. <laughs> By that point in my life, I'd kind of given up hope that it would ever happen. Um, but also, unfortunately, by that point, I'd already had quite a few 
injury issues and wasn't quite able to do what I always felt I could have done. So kind of disappointed myself in the performances, but had an absolute blast and was such an amazing experience. Speaking of that and things that I love pointing out to people, I'll just sort of <laughs> take my time here. My first races in the real pros in Europe, the thing that really struck me was how going from a continental or an amateur level to racing with real racing races where there's almost every team is a world to a team. The way you race before, on and after climbs really surprised me because with amateur teams, it's sort of, it's hard all day long. And so before a climb, it's a little bit easier and then you hit the climb and it is just so fast. Whereas world tour, it is so ridiculously fast before the climb. And there is no TV program that I've ever, the TV coverage of a race that I've ever seen that has really conveyed how fast it gets before a climb. Uh -huh. Like it is as if it's a sprint lead out and you are at 100% and then you hit the bottom right. of the climb. Right. And then you need to climb. And that's just one of the many things that I love telling, like I don't love telling people, but I it's feel- It's a different sport. People don't realize this. And when you come down and you race amateur races, it has completely changed the way I have my tactics now. Yeah. Um, if there's a climb, I'll do everything I can to attack before the climb so that people have to chase me before we hit the climb so that they're really gassed and then we hit the climb. You know, just things like that. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. Bad news. Cat's out of the bag. We know, <laughs> we know your tactic now. Um, I remember that first... I had a I had a gnarly introduction to Europe um in that I broke my arm uh sorry it wasn't even European racing I broke my arm at Tour California which was February then and then I went back to Europe and raced directly the uh uh Tour de Drenthe or Ronde van Drenthe which was a you know low level Dutch race Dutch low level two point. windy and raining I'm sure exactly we literally and started freezing. in a building Start in a building, roll out the building. That's the neutral start, which is terrifying. And then you go race through the Netherlands. First race back in Europe. Then race the Ardennes Classics. And then race Tour of Romandy. Oh, this might be fun. We have a, a leaf blower outside. These are very good mics. We should be fine. Tour of Romandy straight to the Giro d'Italia. And I come back to the States after that, and I try to explain what is what European racing is like. And I say, there's no other description than it is an entirely different sport. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, it is longer. It is harder. It is faster. In every way. In every way. Um, it is. It's not that it is a more difficult sport. It is a different sport. Um, so. And going hand in hand with that, people love to think that sprinters cannot climb. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is laughable. That is. That is a. That is a whole topic in and of itself. Uh -huh. 
the speed at which you have to climb in order to make time cut doesn't matter how big you are. Uh huh. I've seen Andre Greipel go up climbs like a rocket. Exactly. And that's what I really fifteen kilometer long sure. climbs. I really appreciate being a a an all arounder. You know, I came from the States with a with a pedigree of having proved myself in criteriums and I can sprint and I can do, you know, American climbs, which aren't terribly long, and I can time trial. And as a result, I have good overall rankings. I have number one ranked rider two thousand eight that, that allowed me to make the introduction to to ultimately surveil a test team and I make the leap to Europe. But as a result of not being exemplary in any one way, I become an all arounder, which is wonderful. That means I get to race the classics, the Ardennes classics short tours, week-long tours, and grand tours. And I, I don't really realize early on in my career that that is going to be a blessing because it offers me the ability to race all these races. But it really gives me the blessing to see that if you are a specialist, if you are a climbing specialist, or if you are a sprinting specialist, you better be the top three in the world or your local media, your home, nah, probably not home home media, but your domestic media is going to be ruthless with you. And judging your every step. Yeah. If you're not winning races, if you go, if you go top 10 in a world tour race, <laughs> you're freaking good. If you go top five, you're, you're exemplary. If you podium, you're out of this world. If you win, you're... you're Peter Sagan, right? You're, you're Gaviria. Like, you're one in seven billion. Probably not that many. Maybe you're one in three billion. But you were born to ride a bike. So, yeah, it, it gave me appreciation that if I was a specialist, I would... Your shelf life is that much shorter. Because if you're not proving yourself... And not to say, like... If you're not proving yourself day in and day out, then, then you know, you're going to be kicked to the curb at the same time. You also, as a domestique, you you have to prove your worth too because like you said there are so many of you out there exactly that you're replaceable anyway okay let's not get too philosophical <laughs> stick to the here and now i want to talk to you about the olympics ooh la la in particular 2020 olympics which i'm i'm fascinated because you have qualified again and that will be your third that is correct um and well for one you've qualified You've qualified a spot for Namibia for the 2020 Olympics, Tokyo. But you, having earned the qualifying spot for Namibia, don't necessarily earn the automatic get... What's the opposite of get out of jail free? Like, you have not <laughs> earned the spot for yourself, correct? Yes. Uh, which is exactly the same way as the USA... America. 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 For the Rio Olympics qualified by their world ranking place but the rider who had the most world ranking points so you know helped the u.s the most to get that place uh, was not the rider who was sent uh, is that uh, a particular example let's name names i if i'm not i might be mistaken but i believe there's a, there is a chance it was alex house hmm. um and very good likelihood. he was not sent. So in the very same way, and keep in mind that cycling is a team sport and at the qualification event, Namibia was there as a team. Mm -hmm. 
So I was the rider who gained a specific position, which come October will give us the space. So as of today, Namibia has not actually qualified for the Olympics, but we already, it's quite a long and complicated system. Come October, certain like countries will fall out of our qualification system because they qualify via other methods, which will give Namibia the slot. And so the federation will then have to decide who they send. Being a team sport, as I said, it is completely in the federation's right and also correct that they don't send the person who made the qualification. Uh, That said, I have committed significant amounts of time, resources and energy to have qualified Namibia because I would like to go to Tokyo, so I shall continue to invent, invest that time and energy, although I'm running very low on funds, um, to be the person who's actually able to go. Uh-huh. And now let's, let's bring it, mm, not necessarily full circle, but tangential to that, you have an amazing project going on, I want to say Pangolin, Good man. Did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. Uh, if you are an American listening audience and or anybody who doesn't know what a pangolin is, please hit pause, Google it, because a pangolin is the most adorable creature alive. Mm-hmm. Um, I would describe it as an armadillo with way cooler armor slash anteater. I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head. I think I defined the Wikipedia definition right there. Um, <laughs> So you are doing something very, very cool with with an upstart company, which you also pitched last night at last night's Tuck Next Step program, Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. You nailed it, by the way. In your, you were resplendent in your your bright bow tie T shirt. Uh, <laughs> what I have called button up shirt. We can talk about that as what, well. What Ted is not mentioning is the fact that he was also part of the Shark Tank, and he also nailed his untapped presentation. And even better than me, afterwards, he actually had samples on site and passed them around the class. And I was able to get one of the last samples. Um, well, well, carrying around samples of maple syrup is much easier than carrying around <laughs> samples of steel bikes. So, yes, uh, I mean, man, it's such a broad question. But from the top, give me the give me pangolin. Let's start. To, uh, let's start 2011. You have a you have a. Go okay. ahead, 2011. So I'm, I'm actually going to start on the pangolin. So pangolin is Good. an animal, as you said. It's the, the cool version of an armadillo that uh-huh. lives in Africa. Uh-huh. Um, it is also the most illegally trafficked animal in the world because its scales are made of the same substance as rhino horn, which is the same substance as your fingernails. Um, to the, our American listening audience, P-A-N-G. O-L-I-N. Yes. Pangolin. Please stop the podcast, (laughs) Google Pangolin, look at them. They are utterly amazing. So that is, I love them. We have them locally to where I live. We have once found one on our farm. They are an endangered species. And so it is just, I have just taken the name, um, but unfortunately there's no further link other than that at the moment. Uh, So in 2011... I saw that Ira Ryan, an American frame builder, had 
some of his bikes online and I thought they were utterly amazing. They just blew my mind how beautiful they were. And when I realized that he hadn't been building bikes for a terribly long period of time at that point, I thought, how, why, how can this be? If you can do that, can I do this? And if I can do this, what about these guys on our farm in Namibia who have virtually no formal education? Can they do this? So I geeked out, something that every now and then I love doing, deep dive into the frame building world, met a whole bunch of frame builders, took a course over the years under master guidance, built three bicycle frames, um, Robin Mather, uh, the Bicycle Academy, which is the school that I learned at. Everyone should check them out if you have any interest in steel frames and want to learn. Where are they out of? Is the UK? They are out of the UK. All right. Absolutely amazing experience. Um, and then, of course, Saffron Frameworks in London. And I was like, this is a skill. It is hard to master, as any skill usually is. But it is a skill that can be learned. And so... There are two gentlemen who have worked on my family's farm for more than 20 years. With very cool names. Say their names. <laughs> Pietras and Zacharias. Yes. Although... I want to say Peter and Zachary. But. Peter and Saki okay. is how we, <laughs> we know them. Uh, absolutely amazing guys. Both of them are really good with their hands. Typical, you know, Africa, think of a ranch in the middle of America probably. If something breaks, you need to fix it. You are going to make... A plan, as we say in Africa or in Southern Africa, a boer mark a plan, which is a farmer makes a plan. You just have to. And so I brought a master out for four weeks to Namibia, and we have started to teach them the art. I call it the art, the craft of steel frame building. And the plan is to slowly but surely improve their their skills. It's, it's a process. It's going to take time, trial and error and refinement constantly. Um, and eventually, very importantly, not to sell mass produced bicycles and not aimed at the local market. We are going to be building luxury, handcrafted, beautiful bicycles. And I would love to sell them in the capitals of the world, London, Paris, New York, San Francisco. Which I'll, I'll interject and say, so I've, I've heard mm, the three-minute Shark Tank pitch last night, um, and, and I, pitch is the wrong word, but I've seen your presentation. Uh, basically, I've seen the slides. I've heard you speak about this at length on the bike, on our rides. Um, these bikes are stunning. We're not talking about uh, your your garage junker that's going to end up in the corner of your garage. We're talking about bikes that are, are absolutely beautifully built. Um, they're also really cool because you have Pietras and Zacharias. <laughs> there we go. How'd I do? Uh, you know, these very proud gentlemen having produced these, these they're, they're craftsmen. They've produced this. Um, so, yeah, the bikes are exquisite. 
Thank so, you. So yes, when you say you want to sell, sell them in the capitals of the world, mm. they they have that that potential and so for sure. A, a very big part of this is because people think of Africa and they think of poor people. They think of raw materials and they think of charity. And I want to do my very small part in trying to change that image because Africa is so much more and Namibia is so much more. We, I do not want to promote charity. I want to promote business. Africa needs business. Um, instead of paying for these guys' kids to go to school for free, I want to give them more and increase improve their horizons so that they can pay for their own kids to go to school and show their community that things are possible and and just also show their community that we can produce some luxury items and it's it's been amazing every now and then in the workshop they'll do something and they'll come to me like dan here we've done this and i'll look at it and i'll say are you happy with that and they'll be like yeah, I'm happy with this. And I'll ask them, where did I tell you that we want to sell these bikes? And they look at me and they say, New York, as they turn around and go back to the workbench. Because just the thought of this bike being sold in New York tells them, no, this needs more work. Yeah, yeah. I, need to, I need to step it up. And just seeing them sort of work that out and just know it mm-hmm. just makes me sort of get even more excited about sure. the whole concept. And and we touched on it in a conversation a couple of days ago, so remind me of the details. What? How did they learn the craft? Um, I mean, I could put a bike together, but I would butcher the crap <laughs> out of it. Uh, yeah. So, so the thing is, Virtually anyone can build a steel bicycle. If you go and you take one of these week-long steel frame-building courses, and I encourage people to take it, they are amazing experiences, you can walk out of there with a steel bike. But it's an investment in time and money. And So I brought one of the guys who taught me to build steel bicycles. He's a good friend. And I brought him out to Namibia for four weeks. And this guy, Robin Mather, who builds amazing bikes, but very few of them, um, because he's, he's kind of, he's always designing things to make bicycle building easier rather than building the actual bicycles. Um, he loves developing and designing, which is exactly why he was the perfect guy to bring out. And he spent four weeks with Peter and Saki and I in our workshop uh, teaching them the steps and I always thought that these guys had amazing skills but I didn't know for sure and after after a few weeks Robin told me no 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 Dan these guys just their their natural instinct using their hands they might not have the education they might struggle with certain numbers and which is needed when you're building a frame because you need to measure out your top tube and your down tube and all of those beautiful things. But just the way they use their hands, these guys, they have something intrinsically, which obviously made me extremely happy and very, very proud. So 
correct me if I'm wrong, the bikes that they're going to be building are largely gravel bikes. Gravel is a booming business. Of course. Okay. <laughs> gravel. Gravel is just great. Gravel and is gravel great. is. The tie that binds? It binds everything together. So I've been a professional road cyclist, but I come from Namibia. There is no tar road. The closest tar road is more than a mile away from my house. Yeah. I have to ride gravel. Uh, so I built, I've been dreaming of a gravel bike, drop bar, mountain bike tires yeah. since 2011. I finally built my gravel bike, my first gravel bike in 2014 or 15. Like just a few months after the, the Open Up came out, which was virtually the very first mass marketed gravel bike. But like I'd been planning it for years before then. I was really upset when they came when that bike was launched because I felt that it was stealing my thunder. Uh -huh. Meanwhile, <laughs> it wasn't my thunder at all. It was just the whole world was moving in the yes, same direction. Yes, yes, yes. And and Peter and Sakaria, they ride to work on gravel every single day. It just naturally fits with what I love what is available in Namibia, what they ride on. And it's not the only bikes that we're going to build, but it's what we're going to be focusing on for now. Uh -huh. um, well, yes, I, I hope that in 2020, I don't want to say if, but when you are lining up on the start line of the Olympics, uh, that the UCI is not listening to this podcast and, and you're riding a, <laughs> a pangolin bike. Um, and whether or not, so we'll just leave it at that. Um, okay, check it out. We're almost an hour in. Whoa. It's nearly 8 p.m. How did that happen? Exactly. We have not had a meal in eight hours, and we're both two beers in, uh, and about eight Oops. chips and two bites of beef jerky. So we're going to start wrapping this up here shortly. But typically I end with three questions, and, and, and they're very good three questions regardless of your, uh, your background, your history, and, and whether you're from the cycling industry or non-endemic, whatever it is. However, we're going to begin with a, a question relative to the Tuck program, which is we did, um, we did a resume workshop the other day. Oh, yes. That we was got intimidating. Resumes torn apart, which was nice <laughs> because they said, you know, produce your resume and, and don't worry what draft it's in because we're going to be working with some, some uh, business school fellows and they're going to be able to critique your resume accordingly. And since that time, um, we've had a few other follow-ups with recruiters and folks who are very familiar with, with the business world and how well the resumes are received with various bits of information. So ultimately, what we've learned is being concise is important. You want it in a page or less, um, which is, you know, you and I have an interesting background in the cycling world because we haven't spent the past 25 years in the Pentagon as many of our classmates at this <laughs> next step. True. So, you know, some of our classmates raise their hand consistently and say, hey, I have done 25 different jobs over the past 25 years at the Pentagon, whether it's being a Navy SEAL or now being a commander, so on and so forth, like... Blowing our minds constantly. Yes. And you and I say, well, we raced our bike and uh, drank coffee that day. Before you get to your question, just to follow <laughs> that up. It's a long-winded question. Keep, <laughs> yes. Yeah, carry on. 
One of the most amazing parts of this course, 65 people are here. All are ex-military or ex-high-level athletes, multiple Navy SEALs, multiple Olympic medalists. And at some point during the course, I have heard at the very minimum 20 of my classmates and heard my own thoughts of going, I am not worthy of being amongst this group of people. Yes. What am I doing here? Yes. I feel like a fraud. <laughs> and then I will look the person in the eye and say, you have a silver medal from the Olympics. <laughs> if you do not deserve to be here, none of us deserve to be here. And there will be this little look of, oh yes, I suppose I did do that. Five minutes later, I will be saying the exact same thing back to that person and they will say, look at me and say, Dan, you have gone to two Olympics. <laughs> you deserve to be here. And I will follow that up with, oh yes, I suppose you have a point. <laughs> It is, it is an amazing group, um, an amazing community. I mean, we've been here community. for, what, 10 days now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's awesome, the, the cohesiveness that we have created. So, okay, so the question is, let me just dive straight to it after this long-winded intro. <laughs> when I went to my workshop the other day, which was me and one other individual, it was very cool. They paired athletes with military, largely, mm -hmm. and then with one advisor. Um, basically, the question is, do you put the something else about you? Do you have room on your resume to begin with to say something else about you that's not purely academic or professional or your awards? So our, our uh, Tuck Fellow, for example, has an incredible resume to begin with. I mean, he, he was a D1 swimmer. Uh, he, studied, he went to Brown, he studied finance. He worked in nonprofit, and, and what he said has really distinguished himself on his resume is that he is a craft beer enthusiast. Now, as we sit here drinking beer and thinking about the things that might distinguish yourself because other people within the class and talking to other professors and recruiters in this class, they say, don't put anything extraneous on there. Purely list what you're good at. Purely list your professions and accolades and things that you've achieved. We've talked for the past 55 minutes about all of the colorful things that have, that have, that have painted our picture and, and have allowed us to be in the positions that we're in. Are you the kind of person who, on your resume, are you going to put the something else? <laughs> or I should probably just say, are you going to ever apply to a job where you need a resume in the first place? <laughs> right? Could you and I ever that work? That is not the question a, I was expecting. I don't think we're ending up in a cubicle. All right. Podcast over. <laughs> What's on your, would you put that on your resume? So, and or because, would you ever because have the a question sort of had a, a, a somewhat long introduction, I shall introduce my own introduction. So when we were doing this workshop, I sat down after three days and I was paired with a classmate who I'm embarrassed to say up until that point, I had not actually even noticed. <laughs> and then- That's because he's a ninja because he is pretty much a ninja. And um, there are several of them here. And then his CV was put in front of me and my CV was put in front of him. And I realized that this guy is pretty much one level below a general and had been 
in a commanding position for NATO forces in Europe. And that is just the first two lines in his CV, which had many, many lines. And I almost fell off my chair, absolutely blown away by the kind of people who were sitting in my class who are so impressive and yet I hadn't even noticed. Needless to say, since then, I notice his every move. And then he got my CV and pointed out this minor fact to me that I had not even put on my CV that I'd gone to the Olympics twice. (laughs) (laughs) Those are keynote points. Potentially. So asking me about my CV... (laughs) probably not a wise decision I to try and be a little bit more serious about your question though I'm one of those people and I'm I believe I'm vaguely putting myself in your category although you do sort of are a partner in a company that that exists already which is already somewhat significantly more impressive than myself but I kind of have to translate my experiences into anecdotes because all of the things I've done besides going to university and being a professional cyclist, I have done so many things and I have stood out amongst my fellow professional cycling peers in very specific ways that are kind of difficult to show on a CV. And as much as I don't like talking about myself, most people don't, it's kind of hard to then try and put my experiences into a CV. And that's one of the things that I've learned here is not necessarily say what you've done, but show how the things that you've done have made you capable of dot 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 so I shall in the future be updating my CV quite significantly and there shall be several anecdotes in there I might not be adding the part that I appreciate craft beer though (laughs) I think that just goes without saying well taking your or your your our our classmates characteristics in life from our past life to tell the anecdotes to say why being in the Olympics and the hard work that has brought you to an Olympics one, two, potentially three um, to see the humility of our classmates who have done such ridiculous things as being commanders in a NATO military brigade I don't know the terminology, I'm embarrassed by that Um, to 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 turn the tables and, and, you know, you see, like I was saying, how would they, they also have a tough time, uh, putting a lot of pride and backing and, 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 and sincerity behind their CVs, their resumes. And you're like, no. So basically, you know, we're both looking into the mirror and saying, no, you are that much stronger. You are that much more accomplished than you even realize. Exactly. Ultimately, hell yes. <laughs> Go full circle. I mean, like, the, the, 
that's what this program has been about for me. Um, it is amazing to be in this company. It is amazing to be among these professors on this, this, in this academic institution. I will point out that Dartmouth is the only college among the 13 that I applied to as an undergraduate, pre-undergraduate that I did not get into. So, oh. it's kind of nice that as a tuck next step, soon to be alum, you I believe there's no, yeah, there's no pass fail here. Like I'm going to get through this course <laughs> that I got but, through here. And, and that said, like. There is no pass or fail at this course, but I have seen everyone putting in very large amounts of effort mm -hmm. and getting up at 5.30 in the morning to go to the gym beforehand, like more mm -hmm. than 50% of the class was outside in the foyer of the hotel this morning to go to gym before a very long day in class, mm -hmm. which once again goes to sort of back up this amazing vibe and this amazing community that is here of these people who have done some pretty amazing things, even if it's only the outside world that thinks it's amazing. And to us, our behaviors feel normal or even unspectacular. Which I wanted to wrap it up five minutes ago, but it's also awesome to think about that in the context of what yesterday's lesson was, which we took um, a very analytical approach Everybody at home had to take um, had to take a survey, had to take a test, which is ultimately going to describe you. Are you objective or subjective? Are you uh, a big picture or small picture? Are you forest or are you trees? And I've been very dubious of these kinds of surveys in the past. And it is not the Myers-Briggs <laughs> test. It is significantly more impressive than that. It described me to a T. Mm -hmm. Dan and I talked about it on the way to this podcast. It described him to a T. I sent it to Laura, my lovely wife, described her to the T to the T. <laughs> um, and, and I guess my, my, my qualifier there is everybody within this class is very different. We are very different. It's not like we're all, you know, objective, go-getting, militaristic, you know, need to be on the start line and, and, and winning and winning and winning. Like we are very, very different people, um, which I think paints a very cool picture of, of who we all are as people in general. Um, ah, man. That said, the greatest similarity amongst this group of 65 people that has been shown to us in the last 10 days was for some random reason, one of the professors was actually talking about marketing and asked if anyone in the class had ever been in an MRI machine. <laughs> this was amazing. <laughs> Raise your uh, hand at home if you've been in an MRI machine. Probably 14% of you are raising your hand right now. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> the entire class's hands went up and the professor nearly fell over. <laughs> Then once he'd regained his composure, said, okay, okay, let me state that question otherwise <laughs> and asked who has not yeah. been in an MRI machine. And I believe there were two. I think two. Two people, including, and I must say that the course supervisor 
was also in the classroom mm -hmm. and she was also, had also been in an MRI. <laughs> uh, the professor was somewhat stumped and I must say the, the group of students definitely felt somewhat significantly closer to each other after that. Nailed it. Yeah, it would have been a good qualifier. Like, who's been in two times? Okay, three times. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, well, again... Let's go full circle in that it is 8.07. If we were in Spain right now, it'd be time for like pre-apertivo uh, tapas. You'd probably still be sitting at home, yes. Exactly. Here in Hanover, all of our classmates have eaten dinner. Um, they're, they're definitely at the bar and or asleep, getting ready for tomorrow's 5 a.m. run. Mm -hmm. Dan, it has been a pleasure getting to know you this week. It's been a, an honor sitting down with you today and having this conversation. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, likewise. And can I just say that um, I'm very jealous and I'm also very proud or of, of the way that you are doing things post-career. Post you've just started making videos. You've just started doing podcasts. You're doing this gravel thing. Stay tuned. Dan's going to be in the latest Grode to Kansas video again. I think I've said that once. The bottom line is you are doing and you are doing. And to someone like myself, thank you. You are, uh, yes, someone to look up to and someone to be jealous of. High five. Oh, well, I didn't mean the jealous, but <laughs> all right. Dan, thank you very much. Let's get some dinner. There we go. Thank you very much. Thanks again very much for listening, folks. Once again, I also want to thank Dan Craven, Dan from Nam, for taking the time, carving out some, some space in a busy schedule during the Next Step program, and sitting down to record this pod. And lastly, I want to thank Icor for supporting this episode. Icor nerds out on science to deliver the most bioavailable product you can possibly get. Their mission is to provide the highest quality, most effective, full-spectrum hemp extract products available, allowing you to have your very best day possible. And I'm very excited to share this with you. Try a bottle of Icor at icorlabs.com, I-K-O-R-L-A-B-S, and save 15% by using the code KINGOFTHERIDE. That is all one word. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it for me. Thanks very much for sticking around, and until next time, please enjoy the ride.